Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to be covering the first nine verses of one of the most famous chapters in all of sacred scripture. If you were to ask somebody who wasn't even a believer, maybe not much familiarity with the Bible, about what stories they may have heard in their lifetime that are attributed to the Bible, what what Bible stories do you know of, it'd be pretty likely, I think, that they might bring up the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And that's the story that Daniel chapter 6 covers. We're not going to quite get to the lion's den portion of the story today as we're just going to do the beginning of this. Uh, but my, my hope is to pray, uh, to read through the text, the first nine verses, uh, pray, and then go back through a, a verse or two at a time. I think there's some very helpful things for us today here. So if you want to follow along with me, we're going to start in verse 1 through 9. I'll pray. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we read through what is ancient history, I ask that you would help us to remain faithful to what it teaches. Help us to think about this as true as it was when it was written. Help for us to see this through the lens of the cross, Lord, as we are on this side of the covenant break. God, I pray that Daniel's life would be an encouragement and a challenge to us, and that we would see you as the hero of the story as you always are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter again. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we covered all of chapter 5. And in that chapter, we learned of King Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, who threw a party the night that his entire empire would be overthrown. And at this party, he grabbed the uh, chalices, the vessels from the temple of God in Jerusalem, which had been captured by his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, He brought them to the party so they may drink from those chalices. 
This was a wicked deed uh, to be sure. And this king showed his arrogance in that. The Lord sent a vision uh, that Belshazzar saw a handwriting on the wall. That was judgment against him. In a single night, the Medo-Persian army entered into the city and took it without a fight. They were led by Darius the Mede, who was 62 at the time he overthrew Babylon, as the last verse in that chapter told us. Because the great city of Babylon was captured without a fight, and because, as ancient, ancient historians tell us, many of the citizens welcomed the invading army with open arms, it would not have taken long for the new ruler to begin establishing his government. So it's likely that the events of this chapter take place early on in Darius' rule, perhaps inside of the first, maybe into the second year of his reign. Darius the Mede is an interesting character in history. The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, calls him Artaxerxes. But the identity of this ruler in history has been the subject of much debate, which has led some skeptics, as was the case with Belshazzar before him, to consider him a fictional character altogether. Now, after reading a whole bunch on this, it seems to me that the most likely conclusion about this character is that Darius the Mede is the same historical person as Cyrus the Persian, also known as Cyrus the Great. Both his age and time of rule are the same. The location of his rule uh, checks out at the same place. And while Cyrus's father was Persian, his mother was Median, which would make him a perfect candidate for the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Just as Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael all had dual names, one Hebrew name and one Babylonian name, it seems likely then to conclude that Cyrus was known by two names as well, that his Persian constituents would have known him by Cyrus, and the Medians would have known him by Darius. And at the end of this chapter, which we will not get to today, there is a reference to both Darius and Cyrus the Persian. But it seems probable that the dual reference is so that both audience, Persian and Median, and those who know of those backgrounds, would be able to identify this character. Darius here establishes his rule through high officials and satraps. The word satrap means protector of the kingdom. That's what the word means, which is a great word for a ruling authority because that's exactly what civil authorities are designed by God to be, protectors of their realm. God has designed civil authorities to protect what is good and to punish what is evil. These satraps, these lesser magistrates, were to operate as government officials under the authority of the king in their respective assigned territories, and they reported to three high officials, administrators, or commissioners. Now, Daniel was given the honor to be one of these officials. And the practice of a conquering nation appointing one of the conquered counselors to a high position is not at all uncommon in ancient history. It actually was a good way to show some trust and investment into the people that they would know the leader who'd be put in authority after a conquering army came in. Later, the Romans would do the same thing. They'd adopt this policy of instituting conquered counselors into positions of authority. And it didn't take long for Daniel to distinguish himself among the others in the kingdom, even including the other high officials. Verse 3 tells us this. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
So not only was Daniel placed in a prominent position in the new Medo-Persian Empire, but he quickly rose in standing among the others around him, so much so that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. It's a pretty significant thing, if you think of it. Now, what was it in Daniel that so impressed Darius? Well, it says right here, because an excellent spirit was in him. Somehow, either by direct interaction with Daniel or by hearing of his reputation around the palace, Darius became aware of some of the commendable traits in Daniel. And so he promoted him and even had plans to promote him further. It's not surprising. You might even imagine the story of Daniel bringing the judgment from God on the previous ruler, Belshazzar. Darius hearing of that and preferring this Daniel, liking this guy who judged the ruler who came before him. Yet, as is so often the case, this rise in status attracted the attention of Daniel's enemies. Verse 4 and 5 continue. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. We're going to spend most of our time on these two verses today. So if you're kind of keeping track of how long it takes us to get through, I'm going to pause, kind of go through this slowly, and then we'll wrap up with verses 6 through 9. Because I want you to see a few things that are going on here. First of which is this. They sought to find a complaint but could find no ground for one. Can you imagine being uh, looked at and observed so scrupulously that somebody would be looking for something to judge you on and yet have a hard time to come up with something? This means that these counselors, these other officials, did not have a genuine complaint against Daniel. They had to whip one up. And it goes to show just how wicked these men are. But more on them later. First, consider what this says about Daniel. Daniel had made a name for himself in Babylon and now here in Persia. Clearly, the Lord had blessed him with an astounding and miraculous gift to be able to interpret dreams. We hear about that back in chapter 1. But as we covered last week, Daniel had only exercised that gift maybe three times in perhaps three decades. Yet he's known for being a wise counselor a leader, and even a solver of problems, according to Belshazzar's mother in the last chapter. In order to be made the highest official in the land under the king, we'd have to expect that Daniel was not a total doofus that just happened to have a miraculous gift that came in handy whenever a dream needed interpreting. But there were things in Daniel that were admirable enough that the king would want him to be the next highest ruler in the land. Daniel had clearly demonstrated to those around him that he was a worthy, trusted advisor and leader. And this is why his enemies needed to conjure up a complaint. He was too good at his job to be open to accusations on that front. It says here that he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And that's actually from the guys who hate him. They could go, man, that prideful punk. They could find something. I don't like the look of his face. Something. But literally, they can't find anything that would be a genuine accusation to level against Daniel. And this should be a challenge to us. 
This should be a challenge to us, I think, in at least three ways. I'm going to offer those three ways as a challenge to you this morning. Number one, as believers, develop a reputation as an excellent worker. Develop a reputation as an excellent worker. It is so important for us as Christians to distinguish ourselves in the workplace with excellent labor. The whole Bible admonishes idleness, slothfulness, and praises diligence in industry. I want to show you just a few places as we kind of begin to look at this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4 says this, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs continues in Proverbs 21, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. You ever known someone like that? Somebody who has a whole lot of good plans, a lot of, a lot of good intentions in mind of what they're going to go do, what they're going to go accomplish, how they're going to make money, how they're going to take care of their family, how they're going to make it rich. They're not doing any of them. My wife was a high school chemistry teacher before uh, we had kids and she came home. She tells me about this one student that she had who did terrible, never tried at all, never applied himself, got awful grades, never turned in his homework. And she's like, listen, why are you not giving any attempt at all here? You're not giving any effort. And he said, well, I already have a plan. I'm going to be uh, an NBA basketball player. That's where I'm going to get my money. And she goes, oh, well, are you on the basketball team? And he says, no. <laughs> so you're not even doing the thing that you think is going to earn your income in the future yet. That's a sluggard. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs continue saying these kind of things about the sluggard. That's a, that term is crazy, sluggard. Just to call somebody a sluggard. Just, just coming off the lips sounds like an insult. And it is. That's how the Bible levels this against people. The Proverbs 24, 30 through 34 says this. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. If that first doesn't make you want to go home and mow your lawn, I don't know what does. <laughs> that this, this, this author can see that just by observing the property of a sluggard, everything in disrepair, nothing being cared for well, and of knowing that the reason for that is just because the guy likes rest. He doesn't want to get up. Not that he can't. He's incapable. He'd prefer to sleep in than to care for the property that he has. His vineyard, what would provide food and income for his household? A little sleep, a little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You know, don't you, that man was made to work? If you look back at the opening chapters of the Bible, it's the best picture of heaven on earth that we have. And what did Adam do in the garden? Work. That's what he did. He worked the garden. It's actually why he was made. There was no shrub or the field, no grass yet in there, literally no trees. God makes the man to work the garden. Work in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's actually a glorious and wonderful thing. It honors God. In fact, the word work can be used to mean worship elsewhere in Hebrew. It's amazing to look at the way that it talks like that. You and I were designed for labor, 
for work. I actually think that in eternity, we will work and labor for the rest of our days to the glory of God. And it will be a blessed thing. For those of you who are like, oh my goodness, you mean like, like the, the, the sweating and labor? Probably sweating. Personally, I think it's probably going to happen. But the idea of it being difficult is a, an effect of the fall. It was not supposed to be this way. In other words, after the fall, when the curses are being doled out, you remember what happens to relate to Adam's work? The work didn't start at the fall. The work continued. But now the land will war against you. Now when you try to garden, you'll produce thistles and weeds and thorns. This land in a fallen world is what wars against us, but the work was designed by God to be good for us. You and I live in that fallen world today, and our work is to continue. By the sweat of his brow shall a man eat bread, it says in Genesis 3. We are supposed to earn our seventh day rest. You know, in Exodus chapter 20, the beginning of the the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, we're told to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy to the Lord. Why? Because you are to labor on six days and rest on a seventh. That's the idea. In fact, in that commandment is not only a command to rest on one day, but it's a command to labor on the other sixth. We are designed for work. It is dignifying for us to do work. It honors our king when we do it. Now, some might try to go, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. My goodness, in Jesus Christ, we can, we're just free. We don't have to do anything. No, this exact command to work and labor continues on. In fact, we're to admonish the idol, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Why? Don't contribute to his idleness. He wants to hang out. Whoa, whoa, you haven't worked in weeks. No, I'm not going to. Hold on. Don't help your brother continue in that kind of folly, walking in idleness. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 continues by saying, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Want to suggest that's a good idea? Discipline for your high school students? Like, what's for dinner, mom? I don't know. Did you clean your room? <laughs> Biblical. Man who will not work. He's not willing to work. Let him not eat. This kind of stuff continues on in the New Testament. Work is a good and godly thing. It honors our Lord for us to do it, for us to contribute to all that we have in front of us, to work hard. And when you become distinguished in the workplace around you as a diligent worker, one who invests his or her energy in the right things and accomplishes the task, you'll find yourself in the position to have more influence over those around you. And that's exactly what we want. More faithful men and women in positions of influence. And if I can just say, if there was ever a time that it's really obvious we need more Christians starting and running their own businesses, now is the time. If you've ever had an idea like that and are ready to go, get one going. An uncompromisingly faithful business where you can be the employer of many other people and do it better than the world around you. Christians should be the best workers in their companies. Christians should be the best workers in their companies. You are ambassadors for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one under whom are all things in heaven and on earth. He is an authority over all. If you and I bear that name, then we are to live up to that name. I heard a story one time of a 
Alexander the Great walking the, uh, the, the perimeter of his encampment. And uh, sentries were supposed to be standing on post. And he found one sentry had fallen asleep. And he kicked him, and the sentry stood up all ruffled because he knew the death penalty for the one who falls asleep on watch. And Alexander says, what is your name, soldier? And the soldier said, Alexander, sir. What is your name, soldier? Alexander, sir. A third time. No, not my name. What is your name, soldier? Alexander, sir. As the tale goes, Alexander says, well, then change your name or change your conduct. People will watch how you and I do our jobs. They will see how we work. It is the Bible itself that commands us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. This means we ought to show up on time. Focus on our work when we're there. Don't shirk responsibilities. Pursue professional growth in the workplace. It's a good and godly thing to do. Can you imagine the impact it would be on the world if all the top performers in each field were believers? Can you imagine what that'd be like? Not just once in history have there been commands to make Christians the underclass because they hate our faith. Not only once, many times has it happened. And it's not hard for us to imagine a day where an edict could be given from on high that all Christians should be fired. Well, imagine if that edict were to come someday and all the employers would go, no, well, that's our best employees. We can't, everything will shut down if we fire the Christians. Develop a reputation as an excellent worker. Do all things to the glory of God. Second, develop a reputation as a man or a woman of high character. Now, this is distinct from the first point because, unfortunately, Doing excellent work and having integrity in the workplace do not necessarily go together. Some of you may have experienced this in your life. Some people lie, cheat, and steal their way to the top. Some people trample on those under them, taking advantage of other people's hard work in order to improve their position, even taking credit for what they have not earned. It is even possible for someone to produce a profitable bottom line all the while whining and complaining about every little thing that does not go their way. God put Daniel in his position. It's not just Darius. God is behind this movement, that Daniel's in this role. And Daniel honored God, not only by being a promotion-worthy worker, but by acting with integrity, always doing the right thing to honor him. In a similar way, God has put you in your job if you have one today. And you are to honor him by acting there with integrity. You should become known for being a man or a woman who never lies, cheats, or steals. A worker who admits when he is wrong, takes responsibility for his team, doesn't blame shift. The day may be near when you will need to resist an order or a mandate from your boss and is your boss at that day going to think, oh, here we go again. That Christian always has something that he's having an issue with. You can imagine this, can't you? It would be far more meaningful and influential on others if your good work is performed with a cheerful attitude, an impeccable character. There are many Christians in different fields looking for religious exemptions, religious exemptions to vaccine mandates. We've talked about this a bit here. First, if you were to hand one of those to your boss, would they go, whoa, you're a Christian? What? First challenge. Second challenge. 
Are you the kind of worker that always is in the midst of all the conflict? Always needs to be razzed and told, hey, get back to work. Are you the kind of person who comes in late more often than not and leaves early? Cuts the corners whenever you can as a good worker? How about in the categories of the rest of integrity? Are you the kind of person that everyone knows this, one, this, this worker will not lie? I don't doubt for a second that they will not steal so much as a ballpoint pen from my office. I know that they are not going to cheat their way to the top. That this person owns and takes responsibility for what they've done wrong and even shares that with others around them. If you're that kind of person, it'll be much more meaningful in the day you might have to hand a religious exemption to them. I don't want to lose this person. Oh my goodness, you're the best worker in our company. I... My father, I have a great advantage of growing up with a Christian dad. Very grateful for him. He was a police officer, uh, retired after 30 years in the force in the western suburbs of Chicago, where I grew up. Uh, he was one time arresting a criminal who got all belligerent, and after you br- brought him into the, uh, into the, into the office, the, the, the rest of the police officers hear this criminal shouting all of these, uh, uh, these accusations against my dad. You should have seen the cop out there. He cussed me out. He was screaming profanities at me left and right. My dad never cussed a day in his life. He's not said one swear in his life. And all the other cops sitting around there hear this accusation leveled at him. They look, wait, Rick, you say Rick did that? You're a liar. Because we know Rick doesn't say that. We know Rick doesn't use his words like that. To which the criminals uh, 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 and looked like a fool. Brothers and sisters, develop a reputation as a man or a woman of high character. Third, develop a reputation as a Christian. Develop a reputation as a Christian. You notice how the other officials knew this about Daniel. They knew he was a God follower. They even say it about him. Listen, Daniel, there's nothing wrong about this guy. We cannot find one vocational problem. No error in character or quality that we'd be able to undermine before the king. It has to be about his God. Because he worships a God that's not our God. And he is fully and uncompromisingly devoted to that God. Do people know that about you? That you are fully and uncompromisingly committed to your Lord and Savior, Jesus? I say this to you because we must acknowledge it is possible for a person to check the first two boxes that I just walked through. It's possible for a person to be a good worker with high character and not necessarily a Christian by God's good grace. Consider many of our faithful LDS neighbors work hard. They try to operate with good character in the workplace. Your boss and coworkers might know that you're a good worker and a man or a woman of good standing, but do they know that the reason for those things is that you're a Christian? This transcends just not just employees. This can even go down to the realm of students. If you're a student, honor Christ with your schooling. Take it seriously. Your work will reflect on a person's view of your Christ. Do they know? You're a believer. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's awesome. Live in such a way, in such a right and upstanding way, 
that when others see you and eventually take note of it, they will know that it is God who deserves glory. Is that not what we see in Daniel? Each of these chapters, every time that Daniel or his three other Hebrew friends stand against evil, God gets glory. The king acknowledges, oh, blessed be the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what we want for the people around us. Paul once said to the young pastor Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Can you imagine that? That an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Oh, I hate that Daniel guy. Why? I just do. Got nothing. You look like an idiot. And that's exactly what these guys look like. Because Daniel is the upright one here. He has earned a reputation as one who honors God without compromise. I want you to consider this for a moment. Apparently, it's a good number of these people who gather together and conspire to take out Daniel. When they were conniving together, and one guy said, hey, let's go after him on his religion. Nobody steps in and goes, nah, he'll just comply. He'll just bow to the false god. He'll just pray to the king. They all know, they know they can get him here because he will not compromise. Daniel's a man with righteous resolve, and they know it. That's why they don't bring 10 other potential charges against him before the king. They know this is the only way they can get something to stick. And they're right. These guys are correct. For all their folly, they're right. They know what they're talking about. They actually will get him the death penalty. Spoiler. And he survives. Double spoiler. Their stoic dignity, those three Hebrews and Daniel, shames their enemies. We need more Christians like this today, hardworking, with integrity, uncompromisingly faithful to God. Because they know that unless it's in connection with the law of his God, they've got nothing. They knew it was the only way they could get him. Some Christians today wrongly think that if believers just lie low, keep our heads down, do our jobs, and don't pick any fights, then we will be at peace with those around us. But that is just not the case. Daniel's a great example of it. Because it is Christ in us that the world hates. Jesus said as much in John chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says that the world hated him. The world hates Jesus. Jesus, the only perfect man who's ever lived. The most loving, righteous, patient, self-controlled, gentle, faithful man that's ever lived. They hated his guts. I've read books written by Christians 
in the modern era that say that what we need to do is get the world to think better of us. That's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. It's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. And churches have fallen for that lie over and over and over again in the modern Western era. It's just absurd to me. If we can just get the world to like us, to like our Jesus more and see good qualities in him, and like, then we win them. What? Stick to what the Bible says is true, and then they may see you and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You must do the deeds that are good according to the word, not what the world wants. Jesus said that the world hated him, and the world will hate his followers. And this is true all the way down to Daniel. Daniel loved and honored God, and these people hated him for it. Later in the New Testament, they would hate the disciples of Jesus. They'd go after Paul. Men literally made a vow to never eat again until they murdered Paul. That's how much they hated the disciples of Jesus. Why? Because of the sin within us. That they would hate Jesus, the perfect man, so much that they would murder him. Consider Matthew 26. This is, you might remember this part of the story where Jesus is being tried in some mock trial to put him on the cross. It says this in Matthew 26, 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. Hear that? They're literally trying to make up lies about him. And they can't even find somebody who would bring up a convincing enough lie. No, they couldn't do it. They couldn't even attack him in any way because his character, his integrity was so high. You might remember that what they finally tried to get him on was some, some technicality. Ah, he spoke against the temple. Because he said, tear down this temple. Three days, I'll rebuild it again. We know, it says even in the text, he's talking about his body. But even if he wasn't, that's a capital offense to say, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it. Isn't that a good thing? Hey, if this goes down, I'll, I'll rebuild this thing. I, I did. They've got nothing. They have nothing on Jesus. And it didn't stop him from killing him. We should be prepared for the same. The world hates the things of the Spirit. They even killed the holy men of God who came before Jesus too, the prophets who preceded him. The world hates the Spirit of God, even if the world doesn't realize why. And you need to know this about yourself. That kind of illogical, irrational type of hatred and sinfulness is in your heart and mine. All of us have been born with that. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all sinners. And that's why we deserve God's judgment, which is death, hell, for all eternity. But God sends his only son who lives the perfect life, the only perfect man, who goes to the cross and dies, while you and I, sinful, wicked people, go on living. But by belief in Jesus Christ, can we have a trade? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are going to be judged according to something, either your deeds or Jesus's. 
And the way that you can be judged according to what he has done, his righteousness, is by repenting of your sins and turning in faith to him. And that exchange will happen so that the penalty for your sin is borne by Jesus. And the reward for his perfection is granted to you. And just as he was buried and then raised again from the dead, physically, three days later, couldn't stay dead, you can have eternal life. If you haven't done this before, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. It is your only hope. But before you do that, before you do that, you need to count the cost. You need to be ready for a whole lot of foolish. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If they hated our king, they will hate us as well. That's the, count. That's the cost you need to count. And that's the folly of trying to pacify or please the world. It's never enough. The world will never go, that's good enough, Christians. You, that, that, you, go, you come far enough our way. If we have Jesus, they will hate us. If we have Jesus, they will eventually come for us. And there's no way around this. Because of Christ in us, the world will never make lasting peace with us. Because Jesus has declared that everything in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And he's coming to claim it. They see that as an act of war. And they're willing to fight and kill to keep it. And you need to know there's no logic. There's no reason. There's no rationality in it. It it is illogical. It is irrational. It is unreasonable. Have Have you experienced this? If you were to picture in your mind the person who, who most epitomizes for you that worldly voice, do you think you could just convince them with facts and reason? The problem is not a logical one. It's a heart-hardened one. That's why you can, you can work all day long to try to convince somebody why one position is a foolish one. It's irrelevant. There was nothing sane about the Pharisees wanting to get rid of the miracle worker in Jerusalem. No amount of reasoning could convince their hardened hearts. Have you ever thought of it from that level? Like, why wasn't there a wise guy? Whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. There's a miracle worker amongst us? I know some sick guys. Let's get him healed. Whoa, what if I get sick or hurt? He can heal me. I don't even like the guy, but hey, if you've got to heal him, hey, it'll bring people to Jerusalem. And they'll probably pay tithes to us and we'll get more rich and wealth. This is great. Hey, we don't even have to like this guy. He, he's, an, he's an asset. Yet they killed him. They didn't want people to get healed. They didn't want people to hear his teaching. There's no logic in it. At best, there will always be tension between us and the world. And at worst, there will be bloodshed as Daniel's about to find out. Continuing, verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
It's yet another reason why it seems likely this happened early in Darius's reign. It was a temporary period, one month. He was hoping to consolidate power and control, provide a test of loyalty for his new subjects, who previously, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, were given a similar test of loyalty to worship the golden idol he had erected. They say here that all the high officials of the kingdom agreed. Well, I don't want to split hairs here. I don't know for certain if we can make this stick to the text. You can test this. But notice how they say all. All the officials agree. Really? If these guys really meant all, then they're straight up lying. Because Daniel is one of the high officials, the highest of them, and he wasn't a part of this vote, as they claim. And seeing as they've already demonstrated a lack of character, they've lost enough credibility for us to assume that they were, in fact, lying here as well. People who do not believe that they are accountable to a God who sees and knows their thoughts have little reason to not cheat and lie whenever it suits them. Thought of that? You and I have a conscience impulse. We have a spirit-given ability to know in the moment that something would dishonor our Lord. We have an acknowledgement of our sin. But if a person is not a genuine believer in the Lord, all they can gain is worldly grief apart from the work of God. So for example, our own civil authorities. Starting tomorrow, they began only telling us the truth. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine. Can you imagine? If our civil authorities were to only tell, seriously, just simply the truth, whether you liked it or not, without ever having acknowledged publicly and repenting of their previous lies, you and I would have no reason to believe what they say. It's, it's almost at the point sometimes for us that if a civil authority were to come out and say, hey, the sky is blue, we'd go, I'm not so sure now. I thought, I thought it was. Once a person has demonstrated a willingness to dishonor God in their positions of power, we have no reason to doubt they will do it again. Quite simply, it is not wrong for believers to distrust untrustworthy people. I've heard believers say that There's a command in the Bible to honor the emperor. Very true. We are to honor our rulers even if we don't like them. Yes, I think Daniel's a great example of this. But I've heard some extend that to go, therefore, if they say something, we just have to believe what they say. What? What? No, what? No, that's not honor the emperor. That's not give honor where it is due. It is not wrong for believers to distrust those who perpetually lie to them. And verse 9 caps off our time today. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And there it is. This is the way of the crooked leaders. There's no breaks. There's no point where he he goes, ah, this is a bad idea, guys. You're all fired. That's what he should have done. Instead, he signs this thing. It's a great idea. This same King Darius who knows he can't answer prayers He doesn't hear one prayer of one person on the entirety of the planet. Has the hubris to think, that's a great great idea. I I approve of people worshiping me this month. And shutting down all the worship to all the other gods, except for me. I want you to consider for a moment as we think about just the folly of this time period. You and I live today in a time where rulers make all kinds of wicked decisions. In the next sermon on Daniel, it will be a couple weeks out from now, we'll return back to Daniel. When we get to Daniel again, I'm going to talk quite a bit, Lord willing, 
on the role of government and how we resist and when it's appropriate. Arbitrary laws and how we should deal with those things. Hope will be helpful. But here, we see this time period where a ruler makes an awfully wicked law, just like we've seen several times in Daniel already. You and I experience the same kinds of things today. But something that should be very encouraging for us is that Jesus himself came into the world during a time when there were a plethora of crooked leaders just like this. In fact, they were vying for power. There were multiple kings and tetrarchs and uh, governors and statesmen that were all ruling in some portion or another over the region where Jesus did ministry. And yet, he was able to live a perfect God-honoring life in the midst of all that craziness. Daniel here, a servant of the one true God who is not perfect. He's a man. He was able to live a life that honored God in the midst of crooked leadership. It is possible, brothers and sisters, for you and I to live a life that honors him today, one that pleases our Lord every day, no matter what kinds of crazy things circle around us. Cheerfully, we can maintain that attitude in the midst of this stress, no matter what the commands no matter what the mandates, no matter what the, the teaching, the zeitgeist of the age, you and I can honor our Lord and we have a perfect example of it in Jesus. And we should praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we finish up just the very beginning of this chapter, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us to look back to men like Daniel, just, just as we've seen elsewhere in Scripture, that it is good for us to see the honorable life of those who come before us, because all of those honorable lives are just a shadow, just a fragment of the perfection of the living of our perfect Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people who'd learn how to do that, that rather than try to feel we need to change all the things around us in order to honor you. Lord, we can honor you in the midst of the most ridiculous and foolish civil leadership in the world. All people, all of our faithful brothers and sisters who have come before us have had to learn these hard lessons. Teach us as well, Lord. Help us to look mostly to Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for those who do not yet know him, have not put their faith in him, I pray that they would repent of sin and turn in faith to King Jesus and be able to live an honorable, God-loving life in their future, that they would join us in even having to face persecution for the name. And Father, please help us to hold these things deep in our hearts. We may teach them to the next generation, that we may continue to build up your kingdom for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray.